3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning and welcome to Monday Breakfast here on 855am 3CR. You're here with the Monday Breakfast team, Grace, Rob and myself, James. How's your weekend, everybody? Awesome. Uh, I think I've had a very chill weekend. I was sleeping at home. Sleeping in most of the time of the day, on both days, but I did went to the gym. Oh, well done to you. Thank you. Oh, gym in this weather. Ooh. Yeah, it's actually not too bad. It's been getting warmer. Once uh, you're out of the door, it's it's much better. Yeah, once, yeah. You, once you're out of bed. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, that's tough. I've been trying to lift weights. That's why I've tried. Uh, yeah. It's something I've been doing. I'm going to be doing for the first time because I think I have very weak arms. So I really... Really think I need to buck it up because it's very weak. So yeah, well, there you go. Get bulking. It's it's, uh, it's growing weather, as the guy mm-hmm. at my local gym used to say. <laughs> Winter is growing weather. Yes, that's. How true. about you, Rob? Uh, yeah, my weekend was pretty much the same. Not really much to report. Um, aside from I finished watching the amazing documentary on the Matildas on oh, Disney yeah. Plus. How good! Which is epic. I think. Pretty much every episode, uh, myself and my partner were just like so happy to see some representation. Yeah, on on the big platform the that big, is Disney as well. Yeah, how good's that? It's an epic documentary, and I highly recommend it. Yeah, I reckon I have to watch it again after this last couple months. Yeah, I've I've uh, I've been engrossed in sport, but the World mm. Athletics Championships in yep. Budapest. Yeah, mm-hmm. I've been smashing it. Now, it is on at 3 a.m. every night, but I watch the replays, and I've got breaking news. Uh, Two Australians have just picked up silver and bronze in the women's high jump. Amazing. There you go. That happened about an hour ago. So, Eleanor Patterson and Nicola Ollie Slagers picked up bronze and silver. They were beaten by a Ukrainian athlete, which I think is okay, given Ukraine's run lately. Yeah, you can have gold. We'll take bronze and silver. That's all right. That's all right. So there you go. Mm, Budapest has put on a show. Highly recommend. Wow. Next time round. It's all done now. It's all over. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, so next year. Awesome. Oh, next year's the Olympics, so goodness me. Mm. Where is it happening again? Paris. Oh. Okay. City of love. City of love. And I love sport, so there you go. I always say that the Olympics are line up with my next breakdown, <sighs> so I have a breakdown, and the Olympics are on. So I just watch that for two weeks while I recover. What you, what's, what's the sport you're looking most forward to? Oh, I like the distance events because mm. there's so much tension. You know, mm. you have 5,000 meter, 10,000 meter marathon, mm. 3,000 meter steeplechase even, jumping wow. over the big hurdles. Mm. Now that's, that's good to watch. Awesome. Yeah. Well, I'm, I've always been watching badminton and gymnastics during... Oh yeah, Olympics because that's I like gymnastics. It's quite fun, and it's yeah. a very interesting sport that I really enjoy watching because I like dance. So yeah. acrobats is my thing. 
Yeah, that's a great sport to watch. Mm-hmm. So we've got a big show today, pretty jam-packed. Mm-hmm. We've got four interviews lined up for you at home, covering a range of different things. Uh, interview one, Grace, who do we have? Yes, yeah, so basically within Langford from the Climate Action Show, her, it will be is interviewing Emeritus Professor Rob White at University of Tasmania. He is an expert in transnational environmental crime. His recent book with John Van Der Velden is called The Ex- Extinction Curve, and it's going to be talking about the growth and globalization in the climate endgame. So they basically talk about eco-socialism and regrading democratic control of essentials for survival, energy, water, and land. Fantastic. So there's a little bit of a sustainability theme today. Because mm-hmm. uh, our next interview is also about planetary redesign, Rob. What you can tell me about that? Yeah, planetary redesign is actually the name of an exhibit that is um, just opened at the NGV two weeks ago. Um, created by someone called Liam Young, who is a pretty critically acclaimed um, world builder and speculative architect. It's mm. a bit of a tongue twister. Mm. Um yeah, so he's he's brought out this exhibit, which basically um, is just a set of work kind of envisioning in his interpretation what a future after the climate crisis would look like. Wow. But it's very optimistic and very uh, aspirational. So it's not like some post-apocalyptic dystopian world. It's actually um, imagining the entirety of the world gets together to pull all of the carbon out of the air and build one big city in Mm. the middle of the ocean. Goodness me. Um, And it's just, yeah, we had a great conversation about what all of that looks like and how someone goes about designing all of that. Fantastic. Mm. Yeah, visioning's important. You've got to clean up the mess, but where are we we going? Yeah. You know, don't know. These things are good. Mm -hmm. So that's great. Uh, in third interview, we're talking with uh, Kirsty Bishop Fox, the president of the Zero Waste Victoria, and about the upcoming Zero Waste Festival happening this Saturday at Fed Square. Free event all day, learning all about different things about sustainability and tackling waste in particular, and how we can get to a zero waste society. That'll be fantastic. And then our last one, Grace, is with Eleanor Ashton. Yes, so Elena is actually a London-based content specialist at Zapier. So it's like an online blog platform talking about automation and then anything about accessibility regarding technology. Mm. And yeah, we actually did our interview over Zoom uh, in all the way from the UK for her. She's also an advocate for automation and loves telling stories about better accessibility for automation. So very interesting story regarding that. And... Basically, she'll be discussing about AI hallucination. And we looked at last week how uh, with Dr. Sarah Bentley, which is a, who is a research scientist at Cicero, mm. where we discussed the difference between human and AI hallucination. But yeah. this time, yeah. Elena, Elena and I dive into deep, deep, dive deeper into looking at different ways to prevent hallu- AI hallucination, but in the context of chat GBT. So it's a bit different, different angle to this story here. Yeah, mm. yeah, fantastic. The AI thing. Can't mm-hmm. get enough of it. Mm-hmm. Can't get enough of it. We can never get enough of it. I'm going to continue talking about it. <laughs> and it's front of mind because boy, oh boy, is scary. Uh, we don't just have interviews lined up. We've got a couple songs as well. We've got Archie Roach. We've got Emma Donovan. We've got Lucinda Williams. And we've got Camp Cope, one of the great local bands that have blown up, but they're still a local band. 
so that's a lot to look forward to. So we'll jump into our first interview now uh, with Vivian Langford interviewing Emeritus Professor Rob White. Joining me this morning is Aline. My name is Vivian Langford. Rob White is Professor Emeritus at the University of Tasmania. He's a pioneer in transnational environmental crime and co-author of a book called The Extinction Curve. Its subtitle is Growth and Globalization in the Climate Endgame. Not enough of the climate movement is talking about the system. So could you talk about it? It's called capitalism. Capitalism is the source of the problem. But let's be clear what capitalism is. We talk about production and consumption, but basically that's in the hands of a handful of people. They determine what's produced and what's consumed. So capitalism, when you drill it down to its basics, is about ownership. And it's about private ownership. What we have, of course, is a form of globalized monopoly capitalism where increasingly resources are concentrated in the hands of fewer and fewer people. And it's astonishing when you think about it that we, we actually know their names. Uh, and we call them by their first names. Uh, there's Bill Gates, there's Elon Musk, and so on. And they're making key decisions about our lives. The key transformational question is about public ownership. What we've seen in the last 30 to 40 years is the continued privatization and selling off and commodification of everything. We've seen the commodification of water. Water used to be something that was freely available as a right. It's not. Now you buy it as a commodity. Air, fresh air is a commodity, both in terms of selling canisters. We have businesses that sell canisters of fresh, the Blue Mountains air uh, overseas. And where you buy and purchase your house today very much depends upon, are you out of the smog zones? So fresh air has become a commodity. So what we need to do is decommodify the basics. To do that, we have to produce and consume according to social need. To do that, we have to have our ownership and control over our means of, of life. Yeah. And that fundamentally is the core question that the green movements, the climate justice movements must address is, who's going to make the decisions? Because at the moment, it's a form of structural authoritarianism where it's a few people who own and control the resources, who make all the decisions. So we have to democratize that. The agenda for democratization is nationalization. Yeah. Uh, you know, we used to be proud of things like the Commonwealth Bank because it was the People's Bank. We used to be proud of Qantas because it was state-owned. So we need to re-nationalize across the board a whole range of the key levers of the economy. We have to come together around that agenda of democratic nationalization. Yeah. And I think a lot of people start thinking when you talk about this, oh, communism. But I read the other day in France, you just mentioned bottled water. Well, they have now mandatory water fountains in every public place. The, the key terms here are democratic nationalization. Yeah. So it's not state control, it's our control over our resources. Yeah. And that can take place at all levels, in our workplaces, in our communities, and so on. But also, we need to produce both in terms of social need, but also ecological justice. Uh, we already know from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change uh, what needs to be done from the point of view of science to, to really start the process of cooling the planet down. Uh, the reason it's not happening is because we have governments that are subsidizing heavily the dirty fossil fuel industries. We have governments that are granting licenses even today to dirty industries and coal mines. 
so what we need to do is take that control back and put it into our hands. That will require a coalition, a coalition of forces with a nationalization agenda. Yeah. Well, I can't understand when we have a great financial crisis or a pandemic, we bail out those companies because they're essential. They're too big to fail. Why don't we do it? This is exactly right. The COVID-19 crisis showed several things. It showed that the state is fundamentally important, that it can intervene in a very profound, quick way, spend lots of money in what is perceived to be done in an emergency, a crisis time. We need that kind of intervention at the hands of the state, but it needs to be our state, not their state. You know, is it frightened of big government? Why don't they do it? This is about politics. Look, the Labour Party, for example, is no longer what we used to know as the Labour Party. The socialist agenda was dropped years ago. And the socialist agenda was basically an agenda that says we're going to nationalise industries. But yeah. If you want to confront capitalism, then there has to be an ism that confronts it. And the ism that we have is eco-socialism because eco-socialism addresses the ownership question. And the ownership question, in the end, is the most fundamental question. And we can start addressing that question by doing things like nationalizing water, nationalizing energy, and design these industries for social purposes, not private profit. Well, your area of expertise is transnational environmental crime. Who are the climate criminals? I interview people, for example, in Bangladesh, who say, you are a climate criminal. And that's a term used about Australia. So who are these transnational environmental criminals and how can they be controlled? We're talking here about ecocide, ecocide on a global scale. So ecocide, by its very nature, is defined as a crime against the environment. It's a destruction and degradation of the environment at human hands. But the ones who are doing it in a systematic way, you scratch the surface and very quickly you discover it's the transnational corporations. So it's private corporations and state corporations that are both oriented towards a dividend. But that's connected to the global capitalist system. So it's a systemic issue. So the carbon criminal is both a system, but it's also specific players, the transnational corporations. So the climate criminality is that combination of state corporate crime. How far are we into, you know, bringing them under control? There's many prongs to political activism. So there's yeah. a strong stop ecocide movement promoting the idea of an international crime called ecocide uh, during peacetime, because there is one already during wartime. So it always, always returns back to that fundamental question of who controls the means of production. Yeah. Um, most people find it easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. So would you like to just give a message to people who are listening, who take all that action, who really need to keep going? Well, look, the key thing is we need to keep taking action, but we need to coordinate our actions around a political objective. And the political objective is to take political power, because ultimately, all we're doing is raising and flagging the issues, but without the levers of power in our hands, then we, we are very limited in what we can do. And we can do it. We can do it because basically this is what this is the essence of what politics is about. So we need to come together. We can agree on the basics that most people in this sphere are against capitalism. Then we have to ask the question, what are you for? And if you're for clean air, 
sufficient energy, renewable energy, and so on, then you must say who controls air, who controls land, who controls energy. And it come back, comes back to that question, set your sights on taking ownership and control over the central levers of the economy. That is something that collectively we must do if you want to fight against capitalism. Right. Have you any idea how to do it? Well, it's it's a political process. Um, and, and it's partly an education amongst ourselves, but it's also being very clear that protest in and of itself is not enough. We actually have to have a political project. And the political project must be to reconstitute politics in a way we, we, we can actually challenge those who are making the key decisions. Certainly one of the, the hooks, so to speak, of this kind of agenda will be nationalization. So if water is an issue, nationalize. Nationalize the water industry. Um, if energy is an issue, think really clearly about nationalizing energy. These are public goods. Now, and these, this kind of thing has happened in other countries. And it is something that we can achieve. And we can start with the finance sector as well. We can re-nationalize banks, right? And, and it's not as difficult as people may think. And what the COVID-19 crisis showed us is that in periods of emergency, such as a climate emergency, we can act decisively through the mechanism of the state, but it has to be our state and it has to re reflect our democratic interests and social needs. Fantastic. Thank you. So that was Professor Rob White. He's the author of The Extinction Curve and he's from the University of Tasmania. Wildlife Victoria is a non-profit emergency response service committed to assisting wildlife in need across Victoria. Our trained and dedicated volunteers rescue and rehabilitate sick, injured and orphaned animals so they can be released back to their native habitat. If you see wildlife that may need our help, please contact us on 8400 7300. To donate or register to become a volunteer, hop onto our website at wildlifevictoria.org.au. A 3CR supporter. The Seamen Union and the Waterside Workers Federation took part in the longest boycott in Australian history after Pinochet took over in Chile. A democratically elected government was overthrown with the help of the United States. There are many Chileans in Australia who suffered torture, imprisonment and whose family members have been disappeared. We can't move forward as a society without healing these past crimes. The Chilean community, in partnership with the AMWU's International Solidarity Initiative, is holding a commemorative event for the 50th anniversary of Chile's coup, September 11, the day that changed us forever. Join generations of Chilean refugees, exiles and recent arrivals together with Australian unionists and activists in the solidarity movement for a night of testimonies, speakers, poetry and music on Monday, September 11 from 6pm at Solidarity Hall at the Victorian Trades Hall. This event will be held in English and all are welcome. To register, search for Chile 50 Years on eventbrite.com.au. Chile, 50 years of solidarity and struggle. A 3CR supporter.
even subtropical rainforests that don't usually burn were actually on fire. We have the obligation to care for country. So much forest burnt that around three billion animals are either killed or displaced. The more we push back against the colonial apparatus, the more positive change we can have in terms of addressing climate change. 3CR, stay tuned, stay radical. You're listening in 3CR 855 AM. And before that, the announcements, there, were, there was a conversation from Vivian Langford from the Climate Action Shows speaking to Emeritus Professor Rob White about eco-socialism and regaining democratic control of the essentials for survival, energy, water and land. You can catch the Climate Action Show, actually, uh, today from 5 to 6 p.m. But obviously, it's every Monday from 5 to 6 p.m. So yeah, catch it then. Nice. Um, now we're going to move to my interview with Liam Young, who, as I said before, um, has created this exhibit, Planetary Redesign, which is showing at the NGV right now up until February 11th next year. Um, yeah, let's get into it. Hi, everybody. I'm here with Liam Young, who is a director, world builder and speculative architect whose exhibition planetary redesign is now on show at the ngv can you just start off by giving us a run through of the exhibit sure so planetary redesign is the coming together of two of my recent projects uh, an imaginary city called planet city and a visualization of what will become the world's largest ever construction project uh, called the Great Endeavour, which is a planetary scale network of carbon capture and sequestration machines. And the exhibition is really these two films, but also the associated costumes, props, research, documentary interviews that have gone into these two speculations. I guess because I'm interested in telling two narratives, two planetary imaginaries, two alternative ways of thinking about the future. And these visions are not wild, crazy sci-fi fantasies, but they're actually grounded in today's technologies. They're real research. We're trying to explore this idea that climate change is no longer a technological problem. It's now a cultural and political problem and the technologies we need to dig us out of this hole are actually already here. They're just not you know, rolled out at a sufficient scale to, to make any kind of difference. Um, and these two projects are built from these technologies and uh, exaggerations or extrapolations of, of what they could look like if we fully invest in them we pull away all the political baggage and the cultural hangups we might have about them and explore what they might be at planetary scales. Yeah, sure. Can you speak more to how these sets of visions evolved from something in your head to something we can see? Yeah, I mean, essentially, both of these projects started with a series of trips to what we might call today the modern wonders of the world right these are 
like the world's largest solar farm in Morocco, the world's largest wind plant in um, in in China, the world's biggest algae farm in Western Australia. Um, these monumental sites of infrastructure actually hold the promise of what our future could look like. Um, but the problem is that, you know, those type of renewable energy systems, um, those kind of new agricultural um, processes like vertical farms, the world's tallest vertical farms being built currently in, in, in Dubai, um, are all to a large extent held back by, you know, the extraordinary entanglement of the fossil fuel lobby um, within political structures all around the world. Yeah. Um, they're held back by the cultural narratives that have been, you know, very deliberately crafted by that same fossil fuel lobby to convince us that solutions don't look like large-scale systemic change, but instead look like individual actions, which in turn means that the problems we've created for ourselves are because of our own consumer individual choices. Yeah. Um, uh, and really what these, you know, what, we were doing in, in kind of going and visiting these places, talking to the scientists and the technologists that have invested their lives in trying to find viable, sustainable, you know, green energy systems. Um, we've, you know, you know, really my job has just been as a, as a science illustrator or a, um, someone mm-hmm. who, you know, can visualize these proposals that, exists on the margins of our contemporary consciousness consciousness around cities you know we don't think about where our energy comes from it happens Mm -hmm. somewhere across the horizon Um, we don't think about where our waste goes we don't think about where our food comes from because the entire modern city is shaped around the idea that the site of consumption is um, removed from the site of production and what we were doing was basically looking at these systems talking to these people and and looking at the roadblocks that are put in their way um mm. and really these projects are just born out of the idea of removing those roadblocks you know like what would happen if we awesome. fully invested in renewables what would happen if we just immediately turn the tap off on um uh, gas and oil uh, what would happen if we took you know the the promise of carbon capture and sequestration that is working at a small scale in Iceland. And instead of aligning that with the fossil fuel industry, allowing them, allowing them to continue business as usual, we just like built massive scale carbon capture sites in order to um, start to remove all the carbon that's already in the air. What would happen if we did that and killed fossil fuels, not seeing the two, um, you know, compensating for each other. That that's the thought experiment of planetary redesign is, mm-hmm. you know, just to like imagine if um all of our wildest dreams could come true, what would some of those lifestyle sacrifices, changes, sort of the what would these new forms of infrastructure look like? Okay. I want to move on to talk about specific parts of the exhibit. First of all, the great endeavor just had its world premiere in Venice, right? Yeah, at the Venice Biennale, yeah. Yeah, how was that? Yeah, that was great. Um, uh, I mean, it's in, it's an 
a sprawling ongoing project yeah. and did you find that with... sorry did you find that it kind of was a bit of a shock to people or were they kind of happy to see this you know visualization of a future yeah i think both of these projects i mean particularly something like the great endeavor is quite provocative in its imagery um i think it's difficult because it neither of these projects look like what we've been told a sustainable and aspirational future should look like right like when we close our eyes and we think about a utopian future what is seeped into us through popular culture is kind of trees on rooftops you know small scale urban farms in brooklyn um people retreating to the countryside and you know growing their own chickens and tomatoes in the backyard and recycling their milk cartons it doesn't look like mega scale infrastructure projects sitting in the middle of the ocean or a giant desert filled with mirrors reflecting light into molten salt powering turbines sucking air in and um, stripping off the carbon um but the irony is that you know those visions of the future that come from boomer environmentalism are just no longer fit for purpose they're not they're not um suitable in the context of the scale of crisis we've now found ourselves in maybe if we took those lessons in the 60s and 70s and actually you know um followed followed those systems at that individual scale we might have had a chance but we're so far beyond that now you know mm-hmm. we need to be pulling carbon out of the air at gigaton scales and no matter how many trees we plant it's not going to do that even if we do kind of find ways to take back the land required to plant the number of trees that that these passive carbon capture systems would require they're exceptionally fragile and one crazy election means an idiot in brazil gets elected and sets fire to it all and burns down generations after generations of good work rebuilding the forests um mm. there you know there is no future without some degree of this type of infrastructure investment um yeah and that's just really the pragmatic mm. endpoint that we find ourselves in um so it it is unsettling because you know people have quite rightly and with all of the best intentions devoted their lives to those other kinds of solutions and you know thankfully they did because you know we we're, were able to talk about um some of these themes and some of these issues in 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 the ways that we do because of that work and it's 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 really horrible to think that you know that has failed and we're still in the same position that we were decades ago we're still producing more carbon not less um you know that's scary to come to terms with so yeah the work is a provocation and a lot of people see it and go fuck i didn't think the future looks like that that looks dystopian because again all of our visions of the future <clears throat> that are utopian don't look like this and visions of any kind of planetary scale action within popular culture are dystopian are the opposite you know planetary planetary action is the work of the bond villain 
or the evil mega corporation. It's not something that, you know, lefty greenies do, but the hole that we've dug for ourselves is so deep that really only planetary scale systemic change is going to solve the problem. Okay. Lastly, I just <clears throat> want to talk about the costumes designed with and mm-hmm. Crabtree from whose work is featured on the, the Handmaid's Tales. What was that like? Yeah, I mean, a big part of the two projects that are on show at the NGV is the the cultural life of of these two planetary imaginaries. And a big part of that gets manifest in the costumery of mm-hmm. something like Planet City and the workwear of the workers in The Great Endeavour. And to develop these costumes, I collaborated with Hollywood costume designer Anne Crabtree, who famously did the red gown and white cowl from The Handmaid's Tale. Um, she is um, perhaps best described as, you know, Hollywood's dystopian designer du jour. Um, you know, she did, you know, she did, she did Westworld. She did um, uh, Apple's new series Invasion. And um, she's definitely, you know, the costumer for futures and mm-hmm. i wanted to collaborate with her to to not put another dystopia in the world but to explore the cultural life of these two projects which in my mind are actually aspirational visions of a future um at the same time we, we were trying to make essentially science fiction projects that don't look like most other science fiction films. You know, if you think about a science fiction film, generally they're dystopian visions of the future and they have us all assimilated into one global culture. We're wearing these kind of grey unitards with, you know, our numbers printed on them because we no longer, mm. you know, use names anymore. Um, most visions of the future imagine that um, the cultural life of cities falls away. Even aspirational visions of the future imagine that things like mythology, ritual, folklore are revolved away from when technology becomes sufficiently advanced. But that's not really the case at all. Like, you know, across history, we've always dealt with the unknown. We've always dealt with newness by constructing new stories and new rituals around Mm. it. Um, And the cultural life of cities becomes richer and more diverse, not more uniform. So we wanted to explore the subcultures of these future worlds. What are the ritual practices? What are the dances? What are the festivals and celebrations and carnivals like Mm. in these, in these new cities? Um, So the planet city, we imagine a whole series of, different characters, you know, the drone shepherds that that once tended to flocks in the field now are taking care of the drones who are, you know, working the vertical farms, the algae farmers, the um, the beekeepers of Planet City and so on. And we wanted to visualise what, what these characters might look like. So we actually, you know, set the film in the carnival and festival of Planet City. And we're showing them in carnival dress and, and you watch the film and it's a series of dancers performing 
in the city. And then the costumes that Anne worked on in the great endeavor, the workwear, that this labor force of a billion people that would be required to build this scale of carbon removal infrastructure would wear is celebratory. Um, you know, we, we, mm. the basis of the costumes is the whole series of, um, overalls and garments that I reclaimed from retired oil rig workers. You know, there's like Halliburton, yeah. Shell, um, you know, Exxon, um, coveralls. But, you know, these are objects that are typically thought of as being utilitarian, um, fit for purpose. They're about protecting the body, keeping it body clean. And we took them to some fine embroiders and we embroidered all through them with really precious threads, iconography of the ground where they're storing the carbon, iconography from the cultures where this workforce is drawn to try and elevate them, to, to talk about the worker um, in a new way, because these are essentially you know, <laughs> the saviors of the planet building this giant machine and devoting their lives to it. And we mm. wanted to think about the cultures around this endeavor, this, 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 this extraordinary planetary labor, um, in a new way. Um, similarly, the soundtrack to the great endeavor is a collaboration with Lyra Pramik, an amazing Berlin composer. And what we were doing together was imagining a new planetary workers song. Um, yep. Uh, to do the same thing, to talk about this this extraordinary new workforce um, acting against climate change. And, you know, we're really interested in the history of the workers' song, <clears throat> the, the history of the workers' song that began as a system of control, you know, like that the, the kept the body in rhythm as it moved through the field. Um, so that, you know, each worker side by side wouldn't get out of step so that they would most efficiently harvest the wheat or whatever it may be. Yeah. But across time, that system of control began to be sung as, a, as, as sounds of solidarity and community. It's a way that people would identify, um, you know, and the union movement formed from that kind of work of solidarity. Right. Yeah. Um, so at the scale of the planet, what does a planetary workers song sound like? So both the costumes, both the music, the visuals of the film are all trying to <clears throat> explore the cultural life of our future in a way that contemporary science fiction often avoids. Beautiful. Uh, I think that's what we have cool. time for. So uh, thank you very much for the interview and thanks for staying up at until midnight in LA to uh answer my questions. Cool man. Happy to do it. Um Sorry.
Hi everybody, welcome back. Uh, that song just then was Running With A Hurricane by Camp Cope. Um, fabulous song, rest in peace to that band. I miss them very much. Um, before that, we heard my interview with Liam Young, who is the designer of Plan- Planetary Redesign. Um, it's an e- exhibit at the NGV open right now about um, what the future looks like after the climate crisis. Very interesting segment there, Rob. Thank you. So now we're going to be heading into a conversation with Elena Ashton, who is a London-based content specialist at Zapier, which is an online black platform which has been very open to discussing about automation so and many other contents. Elena is also an advocate for automation and loves telling stories of better accessibility for automation. Last week, we revisited a conversation with Dr. Sarah Batley, research scientist at CISRO. Uh, 
discussing the difference between human and AI hallucination. But this time, Eileen and I dive deeper into looking at different ways to prevent AI hallucination, but with the context of ChatGPT. Joining me this morning is Alina, all the way from the UK. Hi, Alina. How are you? I'm amazing. Thank you so much, um, Grace. Yeah, thanks for having me here today. No problem. So this is a very interesting topic we all got to know. Uh, a lot of our listeners would like to know of and learn more about. What is AI hallucination? Yes, so um, an AI hallucination, which I admit is a peculiar way to describe what is essentially false information. It's just when AI deviates from facts, logic, reality, basically. So in a nutshell, it's when AI makes something up. Mm, interesting. And why is ChatGPT prone to this kind of hallucinations? Why... I guess there's obviously a lot of AI models that will will be prone to that, but how is it? How does it work with ChatGPT? So large language models like ChatGPT, they're generally prone to this because they lack they lack the reasoning to apply logic or consider any factual inconsistencies in the answers they're spitting out. Mm -hmm. That's because they that's because they work essentially by predicting plausible follow-on text that best answers or matches a human's question and it gets that text from so many different data sources um, that it's not always going to be correct essentially when it strings certain phrases together um the i think the developers of ChatGPT they've worked to create a lot of guardrails and they've inserted a lot of human feedback to control what kind of responses it gives um, so some of these prevent it from spewing offensive diatribes, but others serve to stop it from taking silly leaps of logic or hallucinating fake historical facts. Uh, but it doesn't always get it right. Mm, I see. So I, I guess coming to all this, uh, coming to all this with ChatGPT not giving necessarily the factual information uh, when they when they are being asked for it. What do you think are some of the efficient ways to prevent hallucination? Yeah, so there are a few. Um, mm. And basically, I I think there are six common ways to do it. And a lot of that comes down to prompt engineering. And that is essentially just the way that you pose questions and the context you give. So the first would be you limit the possible outcomes. So when you give it instructions, you should um, specify the type of response you want. For example, you could ask AI a specific yes or no question, and it serves to guide it better, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and then you can also, another way is to like pack in relevant data and sources unique to you. So you ground your prompts with relevant information or existing data that you have, and that gives it additional context. So for example, if you're talking about a problem specific to your business, you should explain your business, what it does and the context of the problem, and then it will be able to kind of better provide a solution. Um, another way is that you can ask ChatGPT to create a data template for the model to follow. Mm -hmm. So large language models like ChatGPT they're not always going to be brilliant at math, but instead of writing out a prompt in a text format, you can ask it to generate a data table that serves as a reference for the model to follow. Um, another, this is one of my favorite ways actually, is that you give the AI a specific role and you tell it not to lie. So you could say, mm -hmm. for example, 
you are a world-renowned historian and anything I ask you must be the truth. If you don't know the answer, just tell me that you don't know the answer, but don't make something up. Um, yeah, so giving specific roles like that is like really, really good way to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, another way is that you can tell it what you want and what you don't want. So if you specify what you're after, like I want to know about the history of chewing gum, for example, you you can add... I don't I don't want to know about literary or fictional references, just fact. So if you specify that, that is also like a very good way to kind of ground it. Um, and then the final one I would say is experiment with temperature. Now this this is tricky because this one only applies to OpenAI's playground and a few other AI tools. So not ChatGPT because you can't adjust the temperature there. Um, but the temperature in OpenAI's playground it basically, you can adjust it so that a lower temperature, which is almost like a creativity setting, Mm. um, will, yeah, it will produce relatively predictable results. But then the higher the temperature, it will increase the randomness of its replies. So it might go, it might, for example, in writing, it might be more creative. But then if you're asking for like fact or, or historical fact, it will kind of like go off the rails, basically. Mm, that's interesting, and and just to clarify, one the one of the last I think, the last third and the second one that you mentioned, so one is you tell J- Chat GPT that if you don't know the answer, don't don't say you know it, and then the other one is you specify the question very specifically. Is that is that basically what you meant? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So yeah, you you can say you basically tell it to either say yes or no, you can give it a role, um, but you you can tell it in your prompt just to be as specific as possible, if that makes sense. <laughs> mm, I see, interesting. Yeah. I just wanted to clarify on that because it seems quite <laughs> interesting Yeah, in that. And I, I, with all this few ways you have already shared about preventing the hallucination, I think the very interesting one, obviously, to me was the experiment with temperature and also creating a data template, as you mentioned. So how is this doable for our listeners who are amateurs in using ChatGBT? Like I understand you mentioned temperature-wise, it's not really for ChatGBT and more of like open AI playgrounds. But yeah, it, I guess we could discuss more on like towards the open AI for that temperature. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And I think even though you can't adjust the temperature in ChatGPT with like a specific toggle feature, mm-hmm. I think what you can do, you can still ask it in your prompt to be either more creative or less creative and stick to fact. Um, but I think for people who are amateurs and using ChatGPT, I think the best way to just go about it at first is that they should just simply have fun with it, test it out. Um, ask questions and then ask them in different formats to see the difference in responses you get. Mm. Um, so that's, I think, the best way. That's the best way to learn about prompt engineering. Um, so yeah, in terms of experimenting with temperature, people can do that for free in OpenAI's Playground, which is like the sandbox environment. Um, and then as for creating a data template, you can just ask ChatGPT to create one for you with your own data and then ask it questions. And I think that's one of the really interesting things about AI and ChatGPT is that you can ask it to create the prompt itself. So you could be like, ChatGPT, I want to know X, Y, and Z, um, you know, about X, Y, and Z topic. Mm-hmm. What is the most detailed prompt I should be using to get the best answer out of AI? So if you tell ChatGPT, 
that and you're like, I need a prompt for AI, ChatGPT will tell you and then you can basically use that prompt on itself. So it's very meta, but it's like ChatGPT will help you out in creating a prompt so that you get the best answer for it, if that makes sense. Mm. Do you have like a very like tiny example of how to like create that prompt? Like is there like what kind yeah. of questions you can ask in with that? Yeah, absolutely. So for example, say I say I wanted to let me think. So say I wanted to create a blog article outline on Alaska. Mm. I that's very general, right? So I could say to ChatGPT in my prompt, I would be like, I want to write um, a blog article about Alaska and the best ways to travel there. Um, can you create a prompt that I can use for AI that will make it detailed, interesting and relevant? And then ChatGPT will give me the prompt and then mm. I will simply copy and paste that prompt and then use it on itself, essentially. And then it will be like more detailed than me just saying, um, can you give me a blog outline for Alaska, essentially, if that mm. makes sense. That's interesting. And so coming to our last question, as for someone like you who really loves automation, you've been an advocate for uh, ma making making it make people understand uh, how important and how useful it can be. Why is it so important for our listeners to con to be considerate um, in preventing hallucinations for better accessibility? Yeah, that's, that's a really interesting question. So I think as AI becomes more popular and like companies are starting to use it in their customer, like communications output, I think preventing AI hallucinations is, is crucial for better accessibility, number one, um, because obviously misinterpretations can lead to obstacles in productivity, efficiency, which kind of directly opposes the whole mission around of making automation work for everyone. So I would urge listeners and users to be very vigilant in preventing AI hallucinations and to basically just verify anything that AI says currently um, to ensure that technology remains a reliable aid rather than a hindrance mm. so really what that boils down to is that everything the ai says for now you kind of have to take it with a pinch of salt until you can either like verify what it's saying or the technology gets better but it's still i would say ai is still a tool and it's a very new tool mm. and um yeah we just need to verify and be cautious of what it's saying at the moment essentially I see. All right. Thank you so much, Alina, for your time. It's been really lovely having you. Thank you so much for having me. And that was Alina Ashton, London-based content specialist at Zapier. Alina is an advocate for automation, and she really loves telling stories of better accessibility for AI and technology. We ran into a very interesting conversation about preventing AI hallucination, but with the context of jet. Chat GPT. So yeah, this was a very interesting, different segue of a follow up from our last uh, from last week's conversation about AI hallucination and in comparison with human hallucination. But this was with Dr. Sarah Bentley, uh, who was a research scientist at Cicero. So yeah, two different people, but two different contexts. Interesting segment there into AI hallucination. Fantastic, guys. That was a great interview. Thank you. We're going to jump to a song now. This is Sunshine by Emma Donovan.
That was Sunshine by Emma Donovan. Wonderful song for a hopefully sunny morning out there. We haven't been out there for a while. Uh, So now we're going to turn to the Zero Waste Festival. 
a free experience being held at Fed Square this Saturday, offering insights into the environmental impact of waste and actionable steps to adopt a zero-waste lifestyle, among many other topics. We're joined now by the president of Zero Waste Victoria and co-founder of the Zero Waste Festival, Kirsty Bishop-Fox. Kirsty, thanks for joining Monday Breakfast. No worries, James. How are you going? Going well, going well. Hope you're going well. I am, I am. So, Kirsty, just to start off, how did the Zero Waste Festival and your involvement as co-founder come about? Yeah, so the Zero Waste Festival really started from small beginnings. Um, it was a few of us who were connected through a, a Facebook group. We kind of met that way and we were chatting and thought, gee, it'd be great if we could have an event um, to celebrate Plastic Free July and get people thinking about waste in a different way. So we, we got together and we were given the use of that Brunswick Town Hall and we were going to have like a kind of a speed data zero waste or sustainability specialist so people could learn how to compost repair their bikes and their things, mm. nappies, if that was their, their thing, whatever it might, might have been. And as we got chatting and decided to have a clothes shop and workshops, it's like, well, this is a bit more than just a little thing. It's kind of like a festival. And uh, so it began. Fantastic. And how many years ago was that? That was 2018. Oh, 2018. So five big years later, and That's now you right. find yourself in Fed Square. That's right. Fed Square reached out to us uh, last year and asked if we'd like to use... Uh, Fed Square as a venue and the timing was optimal because we were considering in uh, locations as to where it could be it had kind of moved around a little bit so when they uh, offered us uh, Fed Square we said thanks. <laughs> How good's that? So a number of people reached out to each other on Facebook found each other and decided to start this festival which is five years strong now so it's coming up this Saturday at Fed Square, running all day from 10am to 7pm. Kirsty, what can listeners expect from the festival? Well, there's a, really something for everyone in the sense that they can bring along their broken things. We've got the repair cafe who will be on hand to, to, to fix things up for everyone. Mm. Uh, there'll be a clothes swap. So the idea with a clothes have you ever heard of a clothes swap before? Yeah, you swap clothes. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. So what what the idea is, you, you bring along the clothes that are in really good condition that you no longer wear. You might have grown out of them or maybe they're not to your taste anymore or whatever it happens to be. And then you put them into the pool and we've got volunteers on hand who will be sorting the clothes and uh, putting them into you know sizes and categories. And then you get to go shopping. Oh, fantastic. So it's a... Great way to refresh your wardrobe and uh, keep all this textile waste out of landfill. Fantastic. And secondhand of vintage is the go at the moment. Very in style, very trendy. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I've got... what's... Oh, sorry, so Kirsty, what's surprising is we've done clothes shops before, and um, the last one we did, there was probably estimated about 8 to 10% of the clothes were brand new with tags, never been worn. So wow. there's some vintage, but there's some virtually new. Now, I have Rob here, uh, Kirsty, and Rob has a question about golf balls. Golf balls? <laughs> yeah. Hi, Kirsty. Um, I just saw on the um, Zero Waste Victoria website that um, it's encouraged to – well, not encouraged, but uh, you the festival will be accepting golf balls to recycle. Is that right? Yes, that's right. So if you've got golf balls that have done their time because they don't last forever, apparently, I don't play golf, um, you can right. bring them along. And there's a facility, well, uh, we're not recycling ourselves. We've actually got um, different organisations who do that recycling. But yes, bring along your recycling and there are other things you can bring along as well too. And what, did, what, what happens with the golf balls? 
Mm, that's a good question, and I wish I knew all the answers to that. Um, one of our uh, amazing volunteers, MJ, has actually been in communication with them, and she's done all the collaboration. So I can't tell you, I wish I could, um, what happens to the golf balls, um, but they do uh, stop them from going to landfill. Mm, it'd be interesting to find out. Um, mm. I also wanted to ask about, um, I'm just reading about this mini spring, mini spring clean the city um, cleanup group. Or event, um, and they they have a they have an app litter stopper. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, that's right. So that's done by Beach Patrol. It's it's uh, Ross. I can't think of his last time it come to me. Ross Heffernan. That's right, Ross Heffernan, and he's developed that um, app. And the idea with the app is that what happens is. Um, if we have the data, then we know or we can actually speak to councils, MPs and people and say what's going on. Sometimes you might go to a beach and it looks clean and maybe it is clean, mm. but if you don't know what happened before you came, so if at 7 o'clock someone was picking up litter and you get there at 9 o'clock, you'll have a beautiful beach. But knowing that data's been collected is really valuable information. So that's what the app is for. And you can put your own data collection in. So if you went and you know got a bag and got you know 20 pieces of rubbish, you can put that into the app too. Wow. Fascinating. Oh, fantastic. So there are 30-plus exhibitors. There are kids' activities as the clothes floor, like you said, the repair cafe. Uh, there are also a number of talks at the festival with speaker panels. Um, I have my, my eye on one session in particular, which is called Reducing Waste as a Climate Action. So, Kirsty, I know it's a big topic, but just to give people an idea, what kind of ways does tackling waste help efforts in fighting climate change? Well, the reality is, like, the issues with climate change are largely based around our resource use and consumption. Mm. Often we think about energy, and energy definitely is uh, a big factor to play. But in having said that, energy is used in everything that we buy, everything that gets made. Um, energy is also used in, in, in disposal as well too. So when you look at something like plastic bags, plastic bags are made of petroleum, mm. and now we're looking at them as a, as a, a waste um, problem, which they are. But if we didn't have as many plastic bags in the first place, well, that would be decreasing our effect on, uh, you know, the energy use and therefore climate change. Mm, yeah, of course. So, uh, in addition to that uh, uh, talk, there's a, there are a number of others. Is there any one you could recommend specifically, or are they all just uh, too good and you've got to come the whole day? Look, I think it depends what you're interested in. You know, I'm going to be slightly biased towards the first one, can we recycle our way out of it, largely because I'm moderating that panel. And oh, we've got <laughs> some great people there. We've got uh, Deb, uh, Deb Leo from um, CSIRO, who is actually um, the lead of the Ending Plastic Waste uh, Mission. So it'd be really great to get some information from research as well as recyclers and those doing their thing. Mm. So that's, that's my favourite of the day. <laughs> yeah, um, but if people like textiles or the clothing, if fashion's their thing, they might be interested to listen to the, you know, to, to, to the clothing talk about how we can reduce that waste. Um, food waste. A lot of people are into reducing food waste. Um, there'll be some great tips there if you're the type of person that looks in their fridge and says, oh my gosh, <laughs> I should have used that. Now I'm throwing it out. Yeah. Um, so a lot of tips will be shared so you can actually prevent uh, wasting food, which is a big contributor to climate change, um, wasting food. And the, the beautiful thing about that is you'll be saving money if you don't waste food too. In a cost of living mm. crisis, that is important. Mm. That's right. Yes. That's right. Um, sorry, Oh, sorry, Chris. Uh, sorry, Christy. Uh, disgrace from uh, Monday Brecky. Sorry. I just want to come back. 
I just want to come back a bit to the code swap just now because this question just suddenly popped into my mind, if that's okay. Uh, so you, we know that the clothes we will basically be giving, uh, bringing it there to the volunteers and then after that it will be open for a shopping, for a shopping opportunity. But then uh, when the event ends and obviously not all the clothes are going to be that's a case where the clothes might not all be sold out. So what 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 are you gonna do with it? Are you gonna give it back to the people who originally gave the clothes, or how how's it gonna work with that? Yeah, no, that's a good question. I'm really glad you've asked that one. Yeah. What ha- happens is, is we actually um, uh, package them up. We've actually got support from um, some textile um, businesses. Mm-hmm. Um, the clothes that can be worn will actually make their way to op shops or potentially to uh, people that need the clothes. So mm-hmm. they'll be passed on in the right way. Um, anything that we look, we're encouraging people to wear clothes, bring clothes that are only wearable. But we've also got a collection for clothes that aren't wearable. Um, and if the clothes aren't wearable because they've really done their time, they'll actually be sent off to a textile recycler who will actually either repurpose um, the clothing, the, sorry, the, the textile into something else, but they'll recycle and uh, be responsible with the management of that too. I see. Ah, fantastic. Um, just to bring things back to the listeners, we like to have a bit of a call to action with each interview we do. So just to give us a taste, well, in your eyes, Kirsty, what are some simple ideas or practices besides coming to the festival, of course, that people can implement at home to create, help create a zero-waste society? Look, I think the easiest thing that we can do today, and I did mention it before, was food. Um, there's a, mm. lot of, um, a lot of energy goes into growing food, and when food goes to waste, that has an environmental impact. So if we can just look at our fridges before we go shopping and not buy food we don't need and eat all the food we've got, there's a good start. Ah, fantastic. Yeah. Uh, coming to a bit of a bigger picture now, I... I like really hearing how people get involved in these sorts of um, efforts, you know, to help the planet. I studied a Master of Environment myself, and what happened for me is I got a scholarship to go to a conference about climate change, and that just totally changed my life, so much so that I wanted to dedicate most of my time to the environment and sustainability. I'm curious for you, Kirsty, how did you get involved uh, with the people on Facebook? Was there any one thing that really got you going and on this issue? Yeah, look, I suppose I was trying to reduce waste myself, but I'm also an environmentalist. I've got a Bachelor of Science in Environmental Studies. Mm. So it's something that's and I majored in pollution health. So therefore, it's, it's, it's kind of always been my interest as well too. Um, this is, uh, you know, taking a different approach in terms of, you know, education, but I'm also a sustainability educator as well too. So it's mm. just kind of merged, merged together. Um, not just waste, like I, I look at energy and, and water. I'm at a school today teaching kids about water and being mindful with water. So we need, need to be really mindful. We've got one planet and it's an amazing planet. And if we're actually responsible with what we do, we'll have an amazing outcome. But if we're a bit irresponsible, well, it, it doesn't actually take too much effort to make small changes that are better for everyone. Yeah, fantastic. Well said. Now, to close, uh, I'm, I'm going to try something. You, you're welcome if it doesn't work. <laughs> um, but I can just think of a couple things that I'm not sure what to do, what to recycle, where to put them. So do you mind if I throw a few things out at you and you can just give a little spiel? You can try. One? Sometimes I avoid I, I avoid uh, getting things that I'm going to get to that point, but I'll, I'll do my best. <laughs> All right. First off, the big one, soft plastics. <laughs> the best thing you can do with soft plastics is to avoid them in the first place, ah. wherever you practically can. Um, so, <laughs> soft plastics are incredibly difficult to recycle. Um, that is why they're no longer being collected for recycling. 
the problem with soft plastics that we need to be aware of is soft plastic bags do not become plastic bags again. Right. So what they're doing is they're looking for a remanufacturing or repurpose solution, and it turns out that there's not very many of those at this, this stage. So if we can avoid plastic bags... Now, there are many ways you can avoid plastic bags, but the easiest way as a starting point, if you're thinking, right, how do I avoid them all... If you look at your produce, your fruit and veggies, you actually choose to put them into a bag or not. Mm. So if you can avoid those bags, that's about a quarter of the plastic bags, which is quite significant, really. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. So, yeah. so if you can do that, that's a start. It's a really good start. But there are things that are actually looking at pyrolysis where it actually takes the plastic bag and turns it back into like its natural state. Um, that's... Um, well, it's, it's a developed technique, but it's in its infancy in Melbourne. Um, maybe that will be part of the solution, but even if they do get that off the ground, we need to create less in the first place. Mm. Okay, great. Uh, you mentioned that there'll be a textiles bin at the festival. Uh, mm-hmm. When the festival's not on, are there any places you can drop off clothes that uh, are not good enough to be worn again, but are, you know can be recycled? Yeah, look, there are various textile um, recycling places around. What I would encourage people to do is to reach out to their local council and ask them. Some local councils provide certain drop-offs or can give you that information. But if you ask the local councils, it also encourages them to provide the service if they don't. Fantastic. And I've got one last one for you. Uh, we actually have a caller from Thomastown who has bags of clothes and he won- he's wondering where he can drop them off. Do you have any ideas of where, where he could put them? Yeah, come to the festival. Come to the festival. <laughs> um, specifically in Thomastown, it's other side of town to me, so I, I don't know of anywhere local. Ah, fantastic. It doesn't, doesn't mean there's not, but I don't know Thomastown. <laughs> okay, great. Uh, thank you so much, Kirsty, for talking to Monday Breakfast. Uh, I'm really looking forward to the festival. I've got my ticket. Um, Excellent. So thank you so much for your time. Can I just say, sorry, if, if people do want to come, then just look up on zerowastevictoria.org.au and that'll direct you to um, the tickets and the details and the program and everything they need to know. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Kirsty. Have a lovely day. Thank you. That was Kirsty Bishop-Fox, uh, Zero Waste Victoria president and co-founder of the Zero Waste Festival. For all details and free tickets, like Kirsty said, just head to zerowastevictoria.org.au and then you'll find all the details there and many places to put things you don't need anymore. How good. That was a pretty good, gang. That was a great mm-hmm. interview. Interesting. Great interview. I know I'll be going to the Zero Waste Festival. I'm playing football at 3.10 that day, mm-hmm. but it starts at 10 a.m. So ah, it starts at 10. So a bit of a morning session, get mm. jacked on some information. Uh, that's on this Saturday, too, I should just say. So it's 7 a.m. to... Oh, 10 a.m., I should say. <laughs> 10 a.m. to 7 p.m. Uh-huh. at Fed Square this Saturday. Uh, free tickets. Just go to the website, zerowastevictoria.org.au. So we're going to go jump to a song now. Um, this is going to be a lovely tune by someone who I love very dearly, Lucinda Williams. And this is A Long Way to the Top. Going to a show Stopping all the byways Playing rock and roll Getting robbed Getting stoned Getting beat up Broken bones 
Monday Breakfast with the team, Rob, Grace and myself, James. That was It's a Long Way to the Top by the legendary Lucinda Williams. So we're coming up to the end of the show, gang. What are we looking forward to this week? Well, my cousin is coming all the way from Malaysia. She's actually going to be arriving later this morning, so I'm going to go in and sound and cross and pick her up. Uh, yeah, I'm wow. looking forward to that because she's going to be here for a week. And yeah, we're going to be going to many places. I'm bringing her to Mount Bula tomorrow and also going to go to Great Ocean Road. Oh, beautiful. Because apparently, Great Ocean Road, like the travel parcel and everything, that probably might not be there in the future anymore. So my mm. cousin was like, we have to go because the last time she saw it was when she was a kid. She's 26, so we never know when the nature that we've been so deeply loving and loving 
might not be there anymore in the future. So mm. I think we should, everyone should go check out the Great Ocean Road mm. when we have the time. So yeah, I'm going to be going, going there. Uh, it's going to be beautiful. Yeah. And with a loved one as well. How special. Mm-hmm. How about you, Rob? Yeah, nothing in particular. Just, um, yeah, chugging along, doing my thing. Mm-hmm. Chug a lug? Yep. Chug a lug. I don't have, I don't have much on. <laughs> <laughs> How are you, James? What are you going to be looking forward to? Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna do some good reading. Um, Rob just recommended a good book to me, Joyful Militancy. Oh, what's that? What's it about? What's it about, Rob? It's a book. Uh, I might be butchering this, but it's a book about um, sustaining movements as both as an individual and as collectives. It's um, essentially a series of interviews of people who are involved in radical movements throughout the globe. Um, yeah, and it just speaks to them basically about how they how they do such things and how they keep them going. Um, it's a pretty life-changing read for me. Um, so I recommend it to anybody who's interested in learning more about that without you know, trying to get burnt out, trying to sustain yeah. radical movements in yourself and also just to be, how to be a better ally within those spaces. Mm. Sounds like what the doctor ordered for me. I burnt out, <laughs> I burnt out earlier this year trying to, okay. trying to do a PhD about, you know, big well-being economy ideas and it just it just burnt me out. So I'm recovered now, everybody. I'm good, but I might give that book a read. Mm. Need, need a bit of that in my life. Mm. Highly recommended. Fantastic. Alrighty, we might end the program with another song uh, by another legendary woman, uh, Christine Arnoux, the one and only. Uh, this is called Mother's Child. Thanks for listening to Monday Breakfast, everyone. Thanks, Rob. Thanks, Grace. Thank you. It's been a good time as always. Have a good one, everybody.
Because the Palestinian fight isn't just the Palestinians' fight, it's all our fight, because it's a fight not just about land, it's about a fight for freedom. Everybody should be standing here today saying, free Palestine. Solidarity with our Palestinian brothers and sisters on behalf of the Bumbanja nation, my people who've never ceded their sovereignty. We should be recognising Palestine as a state and recognising the rights of Palestinians. 3CR. Stay tuned, stay radical. Stay tuned in to 3CR Community Radio. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.